My name's Sean, and I'm an alcoholic. And that's the end of the facts. <laughs> All the rest of this stuff is my opinion. I'm not a spokesman for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not an expert on alcoholism. But I got opinions. <laughs> Where'd they all go? It's just you and me, huh? The mouth and the fingers. <laughs> our group, our group, and I'm I'm a member of the uh, the Whitecliff group in Horseshoe Bay, which is in West Vancouver, British Columbia. And it is one of the two best groups in the world. And um, we have a signer every week. We have, uh, we have deaf members. As a matter of fact, our literature chairman is deaf. You should see those transactions. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. I want to thank the committee for asking me to be here. It's, it's always an honor to be, to be asked to participate in anything in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, if you drank like I did. <laughs> uh, but to you know to be to be brought all this far just to you know just to put on my tie and tell you what it was like to puke through my nose is I mean it's amazing to me it's just amazing to me <laughs> I love alcoholics and others, and I love to be sober I really do I mean if it wasn't more fun being sober I'd be out there I'm not stupid I mean if it was better loaded I'd be loaded I, you know come on we're not dumb here we um, I have found a solution to my problems, and I'm one of those really lucky people that when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I got struck stupid. And, uh, and because of that, I've just been too dumb to do anything else but Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. I've never had to drift off into any of that other stuff. You know, I've never had to explore my inner child or, or you know, or, or, or my abuse issues or any of those issues. I love those. It sounds like magazines, doesn't it? All those issues. And, uh, and luckily, I'm just so dumb that I've kept it simple, and, and it's amazing. I've been around a while, and there are about four or five of us that got sober. I got sober on April 24th, 1974, and I haven't had a, a, a drink or a, or, or a drug since then. And, I mean, that's a miracle to somebody like me. But I, um, there, there were four of us who got sober right around that time. There was a woman named Claire. I don't know if you've ever heard of Claire. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia. She said she was born there before black was beautiful. And, uh, and Claire, Claire when, she got, uh, when she got sober, wore a red wig and told everybody she was an Indian princess. And to give you some idea of the shape that I was in, I went to my sponsor and I said, I'm not sure that that woman is an Indian. And he said, keep coming back. More will be revealed. And then there was a very, very elegant English actor who got sober at the same time. And he was very, very grand. And me, and then this shit-kicking guy from Montana who was the biggest con man who ever came down the pike. And he's still sober. And the funny thing is that we meet every once in a while. And, and of, the, of the four of us, there's a bunch around that. We've all... Claire and I were the dumb ones, so we just did this, you know. But a lot of them have tried all kinds. Of, they've been at psychotherapy and everything else. And every time we get together, over the 18 years that we've been sober, we're all going through exactly the same thing at the same time. And boy, does that piss me off. Because <laughs> I like the idea that I've got this kind of unique sobriety, you know, that, you know, that I have these kind of special problems that require special solutions. And that, well, you know... 
I still cling to that idea, there's still a little bit left, that at some level, you really can't quite understand me. You know, that my case is just a, just a, a hair off than your case. And so we all meet and find out that we're exactly the same and going through exactly the same stuff. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous talks about something that, 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 that all these kind of self-help programs that they love to attach to, our, to improve on our program, you know, accessorize your program is one of the big things you do these days. You kind of, add, you know, little add-ons. And, uh, and one of the things that, that they seem to ignore is that there's something that Big Book talks about, about more will be revealed. More will be revealed, you know. I have found out stuff about me in sobriety that came at a perfect time. I found stuff out about me at five years sober that I'd have gotten drunk over at two years sober. And thank God I didn't know it. Thank God I didn't know it. And what's happening to me is I'm sponsoring these guys now who have this incredible knowledge of the problem. I mean, this incredible knowledge of what's wrong with them. And no way to fix it. Absolutely no way to fix it. And the wonderful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous for me is I just did what you told me to do. And slowly but surely, I found out some stuff about me. Some stuff that I really don't like and some stuff that I do like. And I stand before you tonight with 18 years of sobriety and I live with some unresolved problems. And when I first got sober, that used to kill me when people who had five years would say, I have unresolved problems. God, you know, I drank over unresolved problems. But you see, Alcoholics Anonymous is, is, is about human beings. And human beings live with unresolved problems. There's stuff in my life that just doesn't seem to want to get fixed on my time frame. So I got to keep coming back to these dingy meetings, you know? And listen to guys, you know, you know where I hear it? You know where I hear stuff? People taking one-year cakes. Something happens to you when you blow out a single candle. I don't know what it is. You get a sentence. You get a sentence. There's this little little girl, and in, in, um, she was 15 when she had, got her first year in, in Hollywood. She had spiked hair, and, you know, this side was shaved, and this was green, and, you know, she had a safety pin through her nose, and <sighs> leather jacket. You know, you know, you know. Another convent girl gone wrong. And... Uh, <laughs> And she got up and took her first year cake and she talked out of the side of her mouth that would swell. <laughs> she said, all my life I've demanded that my parents accept me. But I have never accepted my parents. I went, holy cow. Oh, no. I mean, I was eight or nine years sober. I had to go make amends again. Yeah? A guy in my group got up one time and described my kind of drunk. He said, you know... Once I had a drink down, you know, once I had it in me, then I had a choice about whether I was going to drink or not. I love that, you know. That's how I drag. I get that first one down, then you go, well, maybe I'll have a drink. <laughs> maybe not. Nah, might as well. God, the insanity of this disease. I started drinking when I was 14 years old, and I loved it. I loved it. That's why I'm here. I love getting bomb-blasted, 
crashed, killed, ripped to the tits. I loved it. Loved it. I did it every chance that I could. I love being, ah, you know? You know? Because when I wasn't like that, I couldn't talk. I couldn't walk and chew gum. I was this introverted, terrified human being. <laughs> but alcohol made me normal. I had a couple of drinks and I could talk to you. I could dance with you. I could do God knows what with you. Now, my keen alcoholic mind said, hey, if I can get to be normal with a couple of belts, I wonder what hyper-normal would be like. So I overshot it every time I got loaded. I was a blackout drinker from the beginning until the end of my drinking. I never even bothered to ask anybody about that. I thought everybody who drank didn't remember parts of it. Like a week. You know the only trouble with being sober a while? <laughs> Is it comes back. Those blackouts. My wife has been an Al-Anon the entire time that I've been in AA, which is a great blessing and a pain in the butt sometimes. But anyway, so we'll be driving down the freeway and I'll go, ah! and she'll say, remembering something, dear? <laughs> Last Christmas, I remembered. <laughs> oh. I'm always a little edgy around Christmas, and I thought it was because of the cheap sentimental music and, you know, and, you know, a tiny reindeer on the roof, and, you know, we're sentimental slobs. You know, you play Silent Night, and I go to pieces. <laughs> I used to be too cool to admit that. But I have a particularly lovely Christmas memory. I was a, I was a kind of up-and-coming actor in New York for a while. Not long, but... Uh, and a friend of mine wangled an invitation to a very, very important Christmas due on the east side of Manhattan. Producer and his wife, and she was a very elegant lady. I mean, the kind that was always in the magazines and all that kind of stuff, and I was invited. Well, it made me nervous. So I had a little something before I left the house, which I did if I was going to meet, you know, if I was going to your house and I'd known you all my life. But I had a cold that year, and I loved colds. I don't know about you, but I loved colds. Just love them because colds meant turpentine hydrate of codeine and brandy to me. I mean, that's what they meant, you know. So I kind of, you know, I could never remember whether it was to feed a cold or starve a fever, so I drank. And I, uh, so I belted down some turpentine hydrate and had a couple of shots of brandy, and I was just fine. I was just fine. And I got to this place. And it was one of those incredible New York apartments with the two-story living room. And at the right, at, right opposite the entrance was this Christmas tree that looked like it should have had a skating rink around it. I mean, it was incredible. And all these famous people and all these important people and all of them were being nice to me. And I drank a little. And uh, I kind of slipped into a little blackout there. <laughs> And I came to, with a drink in my hand, dabbing at the Christmas tree, because it appeared that I had just reflocked it. I thought the yellow was a nice touch, but there was this strange sound coming from my shoulder. It sounded like somebody who just had their throat cut. It was and I turned around and it was the hostess. I had just puked on her Christmas tree. <clears throat> And everybody in the room had stopped, including the guy playing the grand piano. I mean, it was one of those kind of parties. And 
God is very, very gentle to drunks because what happened is I slipped immediately back into a blackout. I mean, I don't remember anything. I, you know. What they told me was that I handed her the drink and left. And uh, the wonderful thing about that is, is part of that came back. Part of the, the memory came back, but I can't remember the woman's name, thank God. So I don't have to do my amends yet. But I'm sure I will. That's the fun stuff. Most of it's pretty pathetic. I never did anything interesting. You know, I never, uh, you know, stole a tugboat or, you know, went to death row like a regular guy at AA. <laughs> I just got this series of sleazy, embarrassing, shabby, smarmy, slimy little things that I did over and over and over again, interspersed with occasional spectacular achievements. And you might have thought that those spectacular achievements were designed to convince you that I was better than you, and that was never true. I always thought that if I did something incredible, you'd think that I was equal to you. And that's where I was coming from, and I don't know why I'm coming, I was coming from that. I would love to pin it on my old man. My father was an alcoholic, and I'd love to join one of those little organizations that could just place it all at his doorstep. But the problem is, is that I live with, and I'm in business in partnership with my brother, who is 22 months younger than I am, who lived in exactly the same atmosphere as I did exactly the same atmosphere and has never had a drink in his life. I hate that. Daddy didn't think it was a terrific idea that I drink a quart of scotch a day. He didn't think it was a terrific idea that he did. He never recommended it. That was something I came up with. You know, None of the doctors said, here, I'm going to give you a prescription. Why don't you go to two other doctors and get two more of these prescriptions and abuse them? They never said that to me. I came up with that. You know, the priest never said, you know, why don't you just smoke a lot of grass and uh, and throw your life away? You know, never suggested that. That was my idea. So I am utterly responsible for my disease. Absolutely, utterly responsible. I, I probably was genetically programmed for that, but I'm Irish. I mean, you know, we haven't got a chance. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I decided to do it. So what that means is that I am utterly responsible for my sobriety. And there's a lot of people in AA who don't like that concept. You know, there's a lot of us running around here celebrating being victims. You know, celebrating the fact that it was them that somehow did it, that somehow helped us make the decision. It was the atmosphere that I lived in. It was the genetic gene pool, it was the circumstances, it was the economical. The fact is, the reason I'm standing here tonight is that I drank like a pig for far too long. That's why I'm here. Fourteen years old, I started getting drunk. Seventeen years old, I started taking drugs. Eighteen years old, I declared myself an alcoholic. Now, I noticed there's some newcomers here, and some of you may have thought you're just being overdramatic and as soon as this turkey gets off the podium and get the hell out of here. Um, and if you're not sure that you're, you're in the right place, let me just give you a little litmus test. Now, when I was 18 years old, I said the phrase that only an alcoholic says. Now, if you've ever said it, you're an alcoholic. If you've ever heard anybody say it, you're listening to an alcoholic. And the phrase is, I can control my drinking. <laughs> only an alcoholic says, I can control my drinking. Social drinkers never deal with that concept. 
Have you ever noticed? A social dr- I live with a social drinker. If social drinkers make a fool of themselves whilst drinking, they stop drinking. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Why? <laughs> but I was 18 years old. I'd been drinking for four years. I'd been taking drugs for a year, and I was in trouble with the chemicals. But the prospect of living without them was even more terrifying to me, you know. Now, I'm a child of the 60s. And we're the generation that made drug abuse middle class. You know? We found out why all those black guys were having fun. You know? (laughs) All those musicians. We got to bring it into the family rooms of America. Now, to hear some of the old timers talk, we messed up a perfectly respectable little disease. You know? (laughs) I often wonder if all those old guys who don't want us to talk about drugs... If they were offered the same opportunities we were in the same peer group pressure, would have said, no, no, no. I prefer to kill myself on cheap white wine. Thank you. (laughs) Give me a break. I've never known a drunk who wasn't a pig. You know, come on. If they'd have thought they could have gotten away with it, they'd have done it too. You know? So I did it. By the time I was 20 years old, I was a daily drinker. And by the time I was 24 years old, I was drinking a quart of scotch a day. And I picked up a little non-habit forming marijuana habit. And I, uh, <laughs> and I was working the docks. I love the docks. I don't mean the kind that they bring ships into. I mean doctors. Those jerks. <laughs> now, I have always thought it was stupid to buy drugs in alleyways because you can get arrested for that. What I like to do is get prescriptions. Lots of them. What I did was I got a medical book and and memorized symptoms for the kind of drugs that I wanted. Now, if a doctor isn't a surgeon, what he is is a medicator. Now, the information he gets on the drugs, since he's more interested in making investments in condominiums than finding out what drugs, is from from guys who are, are selling, you know, pharmaceutical salesmen from drug companies, which is not exactly an unbiased source. So what they've always got is a handful of samples. You know, I love those ones. And, uh, and so what they, you know, I, I found that, 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 that doctors don't like alcoholism, you know. It really kind of pisses, well, you know, it hurts their ego. Doctors have real big egos, you know, and, and they don't like incurable diseases. It just hurts their feelings, you know. So they'd much rather that we were crazy. They would much rather there was something... A chemical imbalance. <laughs> now, I love a doctor who tells me I have a chemical imbalance. You bet your bippy I got one, honey. <laughs> and a quart of scotch will just even it up right nice. Yeah. So I would go and tell them my symptoms. They would give me the drugs that I wanted. And then I'd go to the other two and tell them the same thing and we get it all. You know, I was kind of drunk that if you invited me to your house for, for dinner at some time during the evening, I would excuse myself and go to your bathroom, lock the bathroom door and go through your medicine cabinet. And what I do is I take whatever was pretty. Twenty minutes later, you'd either find me sprawled on the bathroom floor in a coma, or you'd have to peel me off the bathroom ceiling, depending on what I found in your medicine cabinet. <laughs> now, I was in my early 20s, and I was buying the great lie of alcoholism, and the great lie of alcoholism is, you still got time. <laughs> you can do this for another week or so, Sean, and then, you know, you got to straighten up for a week, and then you'll be all right. And what I didn't want to look at was how it was killing my friends. I didn't want to look at the fact 
that my best friend in high school hanged himself as a freshman in college because he couldn't kick a drug habit. That's alcoholism. One of my best friends in New York was at... He was, he was one of the cutest chorus boys on Broadway. I was the other one. And uh, he was a diabetic, and he drank like I did. And by the time he was in his mid-20s, he was blind and he was senile, and he didn't want to live anymore, so he pulled the plug on his kidney machine, and that's how he died. That's alcoholism. Another friend of mine used to do suicide attempts. Now, I don't know if you remember suicide attempts. Remember, remember suicide attempts? God, they were so hard to time. You know, when you take the pills and you make the phone call so the paramedics will show up in time, they're... They're tough. They're tough. <laughs> Are you so loaded you can't remember whether you go cross or up and down? You know, it's hard. It's so hard. But he used to kill himself on a regular basis. It was a joke. We'd say, oh, he's killed himself again. We'd go over and we'd kick his door in and we'd make him throw up and then we'd walk around the park all night while we sucked on a bottle of vodka. And, uh, and one night, Terry got very, very drunk, and he took a whole lot of pills, and he made a phone call, and the paramedics showed up in time, but they gave him just a tinge too much oxygen to bring him around, and they blew his brains. And he's been a vegetable in a VA hospital now for almost 30 years. He didn't have any parents, so they can't turn him off. He's in a full fetal position. He weighs about, oh, he probably weighs about 30 pounds now. And all you can hear in his room is the machines. That's alcoholism. Sometimes we don't die. Sometimes we make irreversible decisions whilst loaded that we can't get out of. And that's what I was playing with. And I didn't know. It had absolutely no effect on me because it didn't happen to me. It didn't happen to me. I was going to carry on until I couldn't carry on anymore, and then I was going to do something about it. Well, by the time I was 24, I was in trouble. I decided I, I, um, I started looking around for solutions. I went to a shrink. I went to a shrink. <laughs> went and entertained a shrink for eight months. He was good, though. He was okay. He got me down to a fifth of scotch a day, and he gave me a prescription for Valium and another one for Secondol. God bless that man. <laughs> now, I don't put down psychiatrists. It's just that psychiatrists are not capable of, of working with practicing alcoholics because we're incapable of telling the truth. I told that psychiatrist exactly what I told the last arresting officer. Two beers. That's all anybody in authority ever asked me how much I drank. It was two beers. My wife is an Al-Anon, and she claims that if, a, if somebody who drinks admits to drinking three beers, they're not an alcoholic. <laughs> so I was getting blasted out of my skull on a regular basis and talking to the shrink about, you know, issues, and uh, nothing was getting any better. And what I decided I needed was a good woman, and I found her in an elevator. And, uh, and we started our dance of death, and uh, eventually we moved to California, and we got married, and she settled down. And uh, Now, drunks don't marry teetotalers. I didn't know anybody who didn't drink. I wasn't going to marry anybody who didn't drink. And this girl was a great-looking blonde, was a dancer, and she drank. God, could she drink? It was fabulous. And after we got married and she settled down, we were having cocktails, as we like to call it, and uh, she took a sip of her drink and put it on the coffee table and said, this is boring, and she never drank again. She didn't go through withdrawals, nothing. She just never drank again. She's not an alcoholic. She didn't have the disease, nothing. Then she noticed that I drank. <laughs> and then it got dicey. Because by that time, it was no longer a luxury for me. It was a necessity. I was no longer bragging about my drinking. I was lying about it. I had set up some rules for myself by this point. One of them I followed faithfully into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous was that I never drank before 5 o'clock in the afternoon except on Sundays and holidays. <laughs> 
It eventually got to the fact that if I didn't finish the first drink by five o'clock, that, that counted. And I always drank from a glass. That was very important to me because my father was drunk and we used to find wine bottles wrapped in brown paper bags. And I knew if you drank like that, you were drunk. About, it, it, just, it just got nuts. It got nuts. You know, an alcoholic's life shrinks. It keeps shrinking. It keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller because the people who didn't know that I, that I drank too much thought that I was crazy because I was totally unpredictable. What had happened to me was by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I could no longer predict what my, my drinking would be like. I was, in that, I was in that state where I could have a half a glass of wine and be drunk out of my mind, or I'd drink a pint of scotch and nothing would happen, or I was waking up in the morning and having a glass of water and I'd be drunk again. And that terrified me. That terrified me. And I was trying like mad to kind of keep it all together, and my wife was getting crazy, and, and my, my life was falling apart. And on April 23rd, 1974, I was arrested on a, on a sleazy little charge. I was taken down and fingerprinted and photographed and released on my own recognizance with the front of my pants from the waistband to the knees soaked in my own urine. And it was clear to me, without knowing what the first step was, that I was powerless over alcohol. I could no longer predict what would happen when I had a drink. On April 24th, I took aside somebody I'd been working with for a year. She had six years of sobriety and she was having a hell of a good time. She was having a great time. She had good days and bad days, but she seemed to be able to handle things that were just a little beyond me. And I took her aside and I said the last phrase. I said, I'm an alcoholic and I got 20 minutes before I go to pieces. And she dropped everything and she 12-stepped me. Now, let me tell you what a 12-step call is, because some of you may not know. What she did was she bought me a sandwich and she took me to her apartment and she sat me down at her dining room table. She forced me to eat the sandwich and she made me a concoction to drink that she said would help the shakes, and I will never, I, as I describe it, I can taste it, orange juice and caro syrup, and she made me drink a couple of huge big glasses of it, and she told me her story. Now, the first miracle happened because my story was sleazy, but hers was disgusting. <laughs> and I thought, my God, if she can stay sober, maybe, you know? She had the big book. She read chapter 3, chapter 5, and the 12 traditions to me. I thought, my God, that woman is going to read the entire book. And then she, uh, she said, you believe in God, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I wasn't going to get kicked out before I'd even gotten in. And then she said, and this was 18 years ago, she said, Sean, um, we define sobriety in Southern California as clean and sober. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, that means you don't drink and you don't use any drugs. And I was real disappointed at that news because what I wanted to do, I understood that that drinking was a terrible problem for me, but what I wanted to do was kind of drift into sobriety in a little pink cloud of Valium, you know, just kind of <laughs> touch down into this thing, you know, because I knew the withdrawal would kill me. And thank God for that woman and her experience, because she saved my life. Because if nobody had told me that, I would have quit drinking. No question about it. I'd had enough. But I'd have kept using drugs. And then I'd have drank again. And I'd have started that merry-go-round that I've seen lots of people in this program on. That medication merry-go-round. And so what I did was I shook it out in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. She took me to my first meeting. She walked me into the room. She introduced me to everybody in the room. 
And after the meeting was over, she took me home and she deposited me at home. After she had stood in my, my kitchen and made me pour out all the booze in the, in the house and get rid of all the pills and all the drugs. Thank God, that's a 12-step call. What we take a 12-step call these days is driving somebody to a treatment center. That's not a 12-step call. That's a cab ride. A 12-step call is one drunk talking to another, telling them his story, and telling them there's a way out of it. And that's what she did, and thank God. Because, see, the incredible thing that happens to us is getting sober is the most horrendous experience of my adult life. I mean, there's some people here in your first year of sobriety. How do you like it so far? Right? One of the reasons that I've been sober for 18 years, and there are a lot of reasons that I've been sober for 18 years, is I never want to have to get sober again as long as I live. <laughs> it was awful. It was awful. But the wonderful thing about this disease is there's something called denial. I didn't know how awful it was until I was three years sober. And I look back and I thought, you can't, you can't get a year's sobriety. It's so horrendous. I mean, you took away all my alcohol and drugs, and everything in my life became a decision. Everything was a decision. I would stand on the corner, and the sign would say, walk, don't walk, and I'd have to call my sponsor. You know? Getting up in the morning and deciding between the brown shoes and the black shoes used to take me half an hour. Oh. It was awful. And I was jumpy. I was... I was one of the last of the crop that they gave a half a cup of coffee to. Because I was lethal. I was just, whoo. Yeah. And thank God for that. Now, those of us who came in 18, 20, 25 years ago are the ones that messed up the disease. We started this controversy about clean and sober and alcoholic addict. And I just want to kind of make a couple of comments about it. Because luckily, there were a whole bunch of people that I was associated with when I first got sober who were around who were completely unhysterical about this issue. And I think it's necessary for all of us to be, because, I mean, the fact that we're still talking about it right now is a little like, you know, locking the barn door. The horse is out, man. Yeah. I love addicts in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I love them. <laughs> it's tough talk, listening, listening to an addict. You have to be a chemist to listen to an addict. The weights and measures, I mean, the kilos and the, oh, Jesus. I mean, that's hard. I can't figure it out. And, 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 you know, the, the names of the stuff. You know, that's tough. That's tough. But, you know, come to our open meetings. If you're an addict, come to our open meetings, our open AA meetings, and sit down and shut up and listen. You know? And if some old fart comes up to you and says, oh, we talk about the alcohol around here, you have my permission. Well, no, you don't need to do it. Anyway. <laughs> but you know, the neat thing is that if nobody gets crazy about that, you see, the reason people want to be an addict these days, the big book talks about it. Nobody wants to be a real alcoholic. The big book talks about that. Now, the chicest way not to be an alcoholic these days is to be an addict. I mean, it's kind of spiffy. You know, it's kind of classy. I love listening to addicts, too. You know, they all dealt. Nobody bought. I don't know who the hell was buying, you know. I've never met a, I've never met a buyer who came to AA. They're all dealers. I don't know what's going on. 
So anyway, if nobody gets hysterical, they say, yeah, 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 you know, get a cup of coffee, sit down, shut up and listen. And what happens is they start to listen. And they start finding out about the miracle in here, which is the language of the heart. We start talking about stuff at a level that you can't find anywhere else. And that language of the heart comes, starts transmitting causes and conditions and you know, and they start getting a little more comfortable and maybe come back a couple of times and then they become addict alcoholics. Well, as soon as they got alcoholic tapped onto that, they get to read chapter five. You know, they get to my floors, put the chairs away. They might even get a sponsor, you know, who starts them in the 12 steps. They start working the 12 steps and they start doing their, they finally get to their four step and admit that they drank a little. <laughs> and, uh, and what happens is they become alcoholic addicts. Well, then what happens is they've been hanging around a little while and they go to the bathroom during one of the business meetings and get elected GSR. <laughs> and then they start finding out about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they become alcoholics. Because sooner or later, you find out something around here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sooner or later, you find out that all the psychological theories and all the religious dogma and all the accessories to programs don't keep you sober. That the thing that keeps somebody like me sober, an alcoholic of my sort, is sober experience. It's somebody who's been around a while who's gone through what I'm about to go through, or am going through, that I can say, how did you get through that? How do you make love to your wife sober? How do you look for a job sober? What do you do when your car blows up on the freeway? How do you stay sober? How do you do those things sober? And somebody who's been around for a while says, this is what you do, kid. And they give you the principles, and you grab onto them. Now, those old-timers call themselves alcoholics. Now, what I got and figured out real fast in this program is me running around with double and triple identifications from podiums is giving out a message that my case is different than yours, that I'm a slightly different alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic addict overeater. <laughs> Adult child. What I'm giving out is a message that my case is slightly different. And you know what? Those old timers say, oh, okay. You get to play this thing. You get to be sober by declaring yourself in. You know? As soon as I said, I'm an alcoholic, plain, pure, simple, one word, suddenly I had access to that stuff. And that was terrific. If you knew and if you're playing that game, cut it out. It will further isolate you, which is the thing that kills us all. Just knock it off. We're alcoholics here. And if you want to get well, join us. On the other side, you old timers who have run out of patience, who remember the good old days, Remember the 12th step. I believe that you put yourself in great danger 
by withholding your experience simply because you do not approve of the way that we got here. We all got to meet in the middle here on this thing. We all got to meet in the middle here. And the fact is the times they are changing and they have changed. People are coming to this program from different places and different experiences with different combinations of all the kinds of stuff. What I, what I have found is that the causes and conditions are exactly the same. And if we make this a safe place, then we're all going to get well. We're all going to get well. I have never seen an addict take a one-year cake in Alcoholics Anonymous. If they don't identify, they don't stay. Simple as that. If they're in the wrong program, they go somewhere else. If in the right program, they end up and stay here, like I did. Like I did. I was a toxic chemical waste dump when I arrived here. You know? And now I'm an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I embraced the 12 steps, I got a sponsor immediately. And if you're new, get a sponsor. Get a sponsor. I got to tell you, the way I solved my problems got me here. And I got a sponsor. Then he started teaching me that my life had become unmanageable. My life was unmanageable because every one of my decisions were based on fear. For some reason, I decided there was something wrong with me that I needed to be overcompensated for. And I became whoever you want. It's really interesting. I've just come back from Europe and I was in France and I did the thing that I did the last time that I was in France. I don't speak French very well. I speak French. <laughs> I speak French so bad that what I do is I got I got like two French words and then all the rest is English. But I speak all the English stuff with a French accent. So I sound like Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther movies, you know, or Pepe Le Pew, you know that skunk. Pardon, où est le bathroom? Yeah. I speak French so bad that what I did was I, I did the same thing. I stopped talking. I was walking around Paris, not talking. And it's the oldest idea that I got. The oldest idea. And it's, it's one of the ones that I used to do forever because I never fit anywhere. So what I would do is I would walk into a room and I wouldn't say anything. So you didn't know that I didn't belong there. That's what I did all my life. Or I would walk around the edge of the room and listen to the conversation. And then I would imitate you so that you wouldn't know that I didn't belong there. I had no idea of how to construct a life other than imitate people. And I was always afraid that you were going to find out that I was a fraud. And of course, I developed a life that was a complete fraud. So the first step was easy for me. The second step demanded that I, <laughs> that I come to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. And thank God in Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't make you make the big jump to God right away. A power greater than me was my sponsor. A power greater than me was a room like this full of people like you. A power greater than me was a big book. A power greater than me was somebody with 20 minutes more sobriety than me. And what they were all designed to do was lead me to the one that I eventually had to find. But they were good enough for now. As long as it wasn't me. As long as I was no longer self-reliant. Because my self-reliance had killed me. I needed to be reliant on something or someone else. A power greater than me. Could restore me to sanity was a bit tricky. Now, I, like I told you, I don't have a great drunk a lot. You know, I didn't do a lot of fabulous things. And I was going to, I was going to meetings in L.A., man. You know, and they were, I mean, there were guys talking about eating their own eyeballs. I mean, you know, heavy duty insanity stuff. And I'd never done that. I mean, I was a nice upper middle class drunk. We don't go to funny farms. I, you know, I didn't know from rubber rooms and paper slippers and no doorknobs on this side. I'm drunk, go to therapists and we talk about stress. 
and they give us Prozac. <laughs> they had assigned me a new best friend. They do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if you've gotten assigned one or you did when you were new. My new, new best friend had been sober forever. He had six months of sobriety. And he couldn't talk and he didn't have a car. And I had a car and I couldn't shut up. So he was my new best friend and we were driving to meetings and I'd drive along going, blah, 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 blah. and Rich would sit. And we, we were a perfect team. And we were going to this meeting, and Rich was a little bald in front, and it was a very spiffy meeting in Beverly Hills, so he was torturing his hair forward and then putting it over to the side and spraying it, you know, building himself a hair helmet. <laughs> and it took a long time, and, and while I was waiting for him, you know, <laughs> ready to go, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, he had a big old medical dictionary on his desk, and I started throwing through, and I looked up a definition of insanity. And it had a definition that was about this long, and out of the middle of it popped a phrase. And this is a medical definition of insanity. Quote, a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. Close quote. A seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. Took the second step right there, right then. That was me. I kept slamming myself into the same brick wall over and over and over again, and I was always surprised that I was there. Because what I did was I would come to after having done something horrendous, and instead of looking at it and saying, my God, what happened, what I would do is get loaded and pave it over. I never looked at any of the mistakes in my life. I never looked at the stuff that I, I just went on. Never look back. A moving target is harder to hit. And that was my philosophy of life. So I had never learned anything from anything that I had done because I'd never examined it. I lived a totally unexamined life. Because if I ever looked, stopped, and looked at me, I would shatter. And so I'd never done it. So I took the second step there. And then the third step is that I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand it. I had been raised an Irish Catholic as opposed to a Roman Catholic. And um, by, the time I was, by the time I was 21 years old, I had broken every one of the Ten Commandments, which is a biggie for a former altar boy. So, since I didn't have a religion, I didn't have a God. That's how bright I am. And so what I did was I kind of parked God like an old Plymouth, and whenever I was in trouble, I'd go find it, you know. I learned those two alcoholic prayers. The first one is, dear God, get me out of this, and I will never do it again. And the second alcoholic prayer is, Whew. <laughs> And that was the extent of my spiritual life. And my sponsor said that I was going to have... If I was going to be sober, that I was going to have to search for God on a daily basis. That I would probably never find God, but that I was going to have to do it. And so I started doing it, and it embarrassed the hell out of me. It really embarrassed me. What I had to do was I had to get up in the morning, I would go in the bathroom, I would lock the door, and I would get down my knees, and I'd say, Okay, God, keep me sober, and let me know what you want me to do today. And then I would get up and look around. And then act cool. My luck. And then at night I had to go lock the bathroom door and get down my knees and say, Thank you, God, for keeping me sober. And then I'd get up and look around. Cool. I locked the door when I prayed, but I left it open when I puked. <laughs> Unbelievable. And that was the extent of my spiritual life until I was six months sober. <laughs> I noticed a few people were six months sober. <laughs> I never want to be six months sober again as long as I live. I've never been so crazy in my life. Six months sober is a nightmare. I was going to meetings, I was working the steps, I'd taken my inventory, I was talking to my sponsor, I was driving guys to meetings, I was, I was doing it all. My life was coming unraveled. 
And you can see me driving up and down the Hollywood freeway in a three-piece suit, screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> Six months over. <laughs> and I was in sales. <laughs> I was a functioning alcoholic. I had a wife who had a job. So I took naps. I tried to sleep through my entire first year of sobriety. So I tried to take a nap one afternoon, and I couldn't, and I was furious, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I said, I don't believe in you, and I think you're a jerk! Then it occurred to me, if I didn't believe, who was I yelling at? If you're mad at God, you believe in God. Then I waited for three weeks to find out if I was going to get punished for calling him a jerk. But I didn't. But what it started was the, was, the, was, the, was the start of a spiritual odyssey for me. That has gone on until this day. It broke an idea of a God that was out there and up there. And what started to form was the idea that maybe I was carrying around a little microchip of God within me. It led me, an eight years sober, it led me a five years sober when I destroyed my life uh, to seriously consider suicide. And I found out the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous that I had, I had heard things in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that I did not know that I had heard. And one of the things that I would heard that saved my life that night was that I did not want to kill the man, I just wanted to kill the moment. And that if I would be still, the moment would pass. And I got through that, and I consider that God's intervention. I started to repair my life and my marriage, and when my child was born at eight years, eight, eight years sober, it was a miracle for me. And when I was ten years sober, I was in Hawaii. I've been asked to speak in Hawaii. <laughs> the real speaker had bombed out, so they asked me. And by a series of circumstances, I got to take my wife and my child. And we were there on Kate's second birthday. And I mean, you have beautiful and intelligent children, but I have Kate. <laughs> she's a little redhead, and she's the light of my life. She's not a little redhead anymore. She has opinions now. Uh, <laughs> what the world needs now is a big, smart mouth redhead, right? <laughs> Anyway, she was two years sober, and I took her down to the uh, two years old, and I took her down. I always, I always do that to her. My daughter, she's ten years sober. The people go. <laughs> I forget about our sense of humor. We had a little, we had a pool in in, in California. Things get better in sobriety, and uh, and Kate, Kate loved to swim. She'd been swimming since she was three months old, and uh, and we had this nice couple over, this nice young couple, and I forget about our sense of humor. And Kate, Kate never wore a bathing suit when she swam. And so there was company coming. He said, you got to wear the suit, kid. So she was like two years old, so she put on the suit. And she's toddling around, swinging around. And this nice couple is sitting here. And so she gets out of the pool and comes over. And I had like a glass of Coca-Cola on. So she takes a big swig of Coca-Cola, and then she took off her bathing suit and jumped in the pool. <laughs> and this couple kind of looked, you know, and I said, <laughs> just like her old man. <laughs> Little Coke and gets naked, and they went. Yeah. I don't think we've ever seen them again. <laughs> anyway, she was two years old, and we were on the beach in Hawaii. It was this deserted beach with white sand for miles and not another soul. And this turquoise water lapping in, and my little two-year-old was running in and out of the water. And she has this red hair that was the color of the sunset. And I realized that I was living in the middle of a dream. And you know, one of the reasons that we don't let newcomers make any plans 
is we're afraid that's all they'll get. And I realized that I was standing in the middle of a dream, something that I couldn't have conceived of when I was newly sober. My marriage was shattered. My life was shattered. And there was the same woman with me and this beautiful child. And even if I could have conceived of a dream of, of something like that, I wouldn't have dared dream it because it would have been pushing God's will just too far. And I realized I loved this child. I loved this child in a way that I'd never been capable of loving. There's something cold in the middle of me. There always had been. And, and some, by doing the steps and being of service, it had melted and I was capable of loving in a way that I didn't believe or, or understand. But there it was with this child. And it was an incredible moment for me, but it was also in a moment that I wasn't aware of for a couple of years. And then looking back on it, I realized that something very significant had happened on that beach. Because what happened was it was a kind of final move with my relationship with my God. And what I realized is that I, I don't love Kate because she's perfect. I love Kate because she's mine. And it was somebody with as limited ability to love as I have can feel that way about a child. If we are all God's kids, I wonder what God's capable of. You see, I believe that we were created in the image of God, but I don't think it's the way we look. I think it's the way we love. I think when we're loving and being of service is when we most look like God. And I can see it in these rooms, and that's one of the reasons that I keep coming back. I can see it when the little old lady in a little feather hat says to the 15-year-old punk girl with, with the, you know, the safety pin through her nose, Come sit next to me, dear. I can see the family resemblance. I can see it when the guy gets on the bus and goes all the way across town to get the literature for the meeting and brings it back in a cardboard box on the bus. I can see how he looks like that. I can see it, the woman who stands at the door and shakes hands and helps people come across the threshold. I can see it, the people who mop the floors. I can see it, the one who gets there at 6 o'clock at night to make sure this coffee is hot by 8. I can see how they look like God. And that's why I keep coming back, because I don't believe there are any good people or bad people anymore. I just believe there are people who know and people who don't know. And I'm one of the people who didn't know. I didn't know anything. I had no idea what it was like to be a human being. I knew what it was like to look like one, but I had no idea how to be one. And slowly but surely, I let you teach me in your time, not in mine, and in God's time. And slowly but surely, some things have happened to me that have been significant, and I want to share a couple of them with you just before I leave. My father was never there for me. My father was a drunken sailor. He was at sea both literally and figuratively all the time. And at the important events of my life, he was never there, and I had a resentment that I wanted to blame it on. But I did my amends list, and my sponsor pointed out that I needed to make an amends to my father. It didn't matter what kind of father he had been to me. What did matter was what kind of son I had been to him. And what I had done was I had worried that man. I put him through a ringer because I was exactly like he was. I would disappear. I did all kinds of things. And what I needed to do was go back to him and tell him that I was sorry for doing that, for worrying him and upsetting him and taking his money and all that kind of stuff. And that I was living a new life and I was trying to change and could he forgive me. Now, I didn't go slamming into that house with a big book and say, this is the way we're going to live our lives from now on. What you need to do is get sober, Dan, and work these programs. I didn't do that. I didn't tell him anything that he had done wrong. I just told him what I'd done wrong. And you know what happened? He told me his story. 
He told me about being abandoned by his mother when he was five years old, about putting, being put in an orphanage when he was eight years old and going down to the town where this orphanage was to the hotel every day to watch for his father. And two years later, his father walked into that hotel, terribly shocked. And his father told him he was going to go live with his aunt, and he was sent to live with his aunt, and he worked for her in her hotel, washing toilets and scrubbing floors. And when he was 21 years old, he found out his aunt was his mother. He told me a story that was shattering and terrifying. The fact that he was alive. The fact that he was as good a father as he was was a miracle. I have no right to do generational chauvinism. I have no right to take 1992 standards and apply them to somebody who was born in 1910. That's not fair. It's not fair, and we're doing it left, right, and center around here. What we're doing is we're, we're taking knowledge that we've got from today and enforcing it on people who didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. And my father and I developed a relationship that was terrific. He was not the father that I wanted, and I wasn't the son that he wanted, but we worked out something that was okay. And it was great until he died. One of the things that happened to me when I was a child, and the amends step is critical for us if we're going to recover, because we've got to go make amends even to those people that have done terrible things to us. And if we can't make amends to them, we've got to forgive them. Or we're never, ever going to be free. And the one thing I love today is I am free. I am totally free, man. I am free. When I was 11 years old, I was molested in a, in a movie theater. It was terrifying. Um, one of the things that I had to admit in my, in, my, uh, in my inventory was that it was also exciting. Uh, it was dangerous. There were all kinds of things that were a package. It wasn't one, it, you know, it wasn't cut and dried and it wasn't black and white. It wasn't anything. It was a combination of stuff. And stuff that I had to admit to myself and to another human being that I didn't like to have to have to do. But I hated that man. I had a picture of his face my whole life. I blamed him for a lot of my problems. And by the time I had done my eighth step and my ninth step and having done my fifth step, I realized that I had to forgive him if I was ever going to grow up. That that man had breached a fundamental trust. They had taken my childhood away from me, all kinds of things. But that it was time for me to get on with my life. And so I did. Close to the time that my father was dying, I went back to my hometown in Canada. And uh, I was walking down the street in my hometown. And down the street came the man. And he was little. I'd remembered him as being huge. He, of course, didn't recognize me because I had changed utterly. But he was little and he was old. And I stopped. I mean, I just stopped still. And as he got closer, he saw me looking at him. And I could see in his eyes, I could see the terror. Because he knew that I knew who he was and what he was. And I could see that he lived every day of his life like that. Every day of his life waiting to be caught to be stopped he probably had been at some time and I was free I didn't want revenge I didn't want to hurt him I was filled with this incredible compassion for this poor little guy who had no way out and the fact is is that I knew how he felt because I'd been in those kind of boxes too my life 
I'd been trapped in an obsession. I'd had all kinds of feelings like that. But I had been offered a way out that I took and I worked at. And I was free. And those are the kind of miracles that happen in Alcoholics Anonymous just by doing the 12 steps and having a sponsor and willing to be of service. And my life today is extraordinary. We moved to, uh, to Vancouver, British Columbia, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I live in a house that looks out over the ocean. I'm a <laughs> I live in a house that's two blocks from a beach and 15 minutes from a ski resort. My kid goes skiing after school and comes home for dinner. I live a kind of life that is beyond anything that I, I could dream of. And about three or four years ago, I had the most incredible success of my life with, with a creative endeavor that I, that I produced, and, and there it was, and it was... It was incredible, and at the same time, I was diagnosed with skin cancer. It certainly levels the playing field, and, uh, and it's something that's been an ongoing thing. And I thought, hey, they'll just take care of this, and I'll be on with it. I mean, I hate unresolved problems. <laughs> and now I'm living with unresolved physical problems. Occasionally, you know, some strange little thing starts growing on me, and I go, and they get out the melon scoop and, you know, scoop it away and stitch it up. I'm now stitched up over several places. <laughs> I look like a railroad map of New Jersey. So I've had to give up my night job as a strippergram. <laughs> my wife loves me. We've been together so long, she's been working in her Al-Anon program so long that our character defects now make each other laugh. And I understand once you get to that point, you're, you're home free. <laughs> My daughter is tall and bright and athletic and funny and just grand. And the way I was going, I certainly was of the generation that didn't want to live beyond 30. We had nothing to live for after that. (laughs) And on August 29th of this year, I was in Paris with my wife and daughter, and we celebrated my 50th birthday. We went to the uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Paris and had a hamburger. We'd had all that great French food for three weeks, and I wanted a hamburger. And then we went to the Follies Berger. <laughs> a couple of things still work. <laughs> and my life is fabulous. My life is fabulous. And the wonderful thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is I'm, on the, I'm, I'm pretty much the same on the inside as I am on the outside. And I've got to tell you, it's real easy to live good in, in Cincinnati when you live in Vancouver. You know, I'm certainly going to stand up here in my best sports jacket and put on my best foot forward. But I've got to tell you, on a daily basis, I'm just as capable of being an asshole as anybody in this room. I still chase people down the freeway once in a while. If my spiritual program ever gets to work on a freeway, I will... I will be amazed. I mean, I will be amazed, you know. The 12 steps says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, it's got three parts to that thing and it's very important. Having had a spiritual awakening as a part, as a result of these steps, is the promise in the second step that we will be restored to sanity. That's what that is. And I've done the 12 steps over and over and over again and I know a lot of you have too. And if you've done them effectively, you're not crazy anymore. I'm not crazy. I can't come to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and say, I chased somebody down the freeway because I'm just so crazy today. I can't do that anymore. I can't cop to that because it's a lie. I'm not crazy. I've been restored to sanity. What I am is selfish, self-obsessed, self-destructive, 
self-protective, self-self, 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 self. You know, there's nothing clinical about it. Yeah. I'm just a greedy jerk. That's all it is. But I carry the message to alcoholics whenever I'm asked to, things like this, which is very pleasant. Things like going to a guy's apartment at 2 o'clock in the morning and he throws up on your shoes, which is not very pleasant. I sweep the floors. I wash the cups. I, um, I'm going to be sponsoring an Alateen meeting that starts tomorrow night. Um, I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then comes the biggie right at the end there. And I try to practice these principles in all my affairs. Because I believe it is important for us, if we are going to be the most effective sober people that we can be, we've got to be members of the community. We've got to be tax-paying, voting, participating members of society. Because the most effective 12-step work we can do is to be somewhere when somebody says, I need to stop drinking and I don't know how. And I get to say, I've had that problem too. You see, I'm an alcoholic and they say, you're an alcoholic? You can't be an alcoholic. That's when we got it. That's when we got the guy. You know? When we don't act like we used to act. When we don't act like drunks. When we don't act like fools. When we act like loving people who are of service. Who are willing to just kind of be there. To just be ordinary guys. You know, when we practice anonymity. Anonymity is a spiritual principle whereby I give up the need to distinguish myself. Either within Alcoholics Anonymous or out there in the real world. You know? I am a worker among workers. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I go to soccer games in the pouring rain. I do all that kind of stuff because you've given me a real life, an honest-to-God life. And I keep coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous because I can never repay you. I can't repay you. So what I do is I come back and I do what I'm asked. And I do it over and over and over again. And the rewards are beyond anything that I can describe. So if I've got anything that you want, all you got to do is what I did. You don't drink, you don't use, you work the 12 steps, you get a sponsor, you become active in the fellowship and try to be of service. It works. And it's fabulous. Keep coming back. I love you.